the human being random accident or wonderfully made well over 3,000 years ago without the medical or scientific knowledge or understanding of course that we have today King David wrote these words about how we the human race came to be he's talking about God when he wrote you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, 13 and 14. That was over 3,000 years ago. Here's what we know today. The human body is made up of seven octillion atoms. That's seven followed by 27 zeros. The human brain cell can hold five times as much information as the Encyclopedia Britannica. The human body is estimated to have 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Your teeth start growing six months before you're born. Humans shed and regrow outer skin cells about every 27 days. There are 2.5 trillion red blood cells in your body at any moment and to maintain that number about two and a half million new ones need to be produced every second by your bone marrow that's like replacing the population of the city of Toronto every second taking into consideration all of the tissues and cells in your body there are 25 million new cells being produced each second that's a little less than the population of Canada being produced every second. Our eyes can distinguish up to one million color surfaces and take in more information than the largest telescope known to man. The stomach's digestive acids are strong enough to dissolve zinc so the stomach lining is constantly regenerating itself and is completely replaced about every three to four days. And every time we touch something we send a message to our brain at 124 miles per hour. Now you tell me, random accident or wonderfully made? I'm gonna stick with wonderfully made. In fact, when you consider the complexity of just the human body with all of its parts that grow and work together to heal itself and to protect itself and to perpetuate itself in ways that are infinitely more complex and ordered and structured than any man-made machinery could ever hope to be, I honestly struggle with the fact that we question the existence of a designer and a creator of the human body while comfortably accepting the existence of designers and creators for every other far less complex machine on this earth. I just can't see any other reasonable explanation for humanity's existence apart from an intelligent designer and creator. Which is precisely why the Apostle Paul, a brilliant mind by anyone's standards, said that all of creation, not just the human body, but all of creation testifies to the existence of a creator. In fact, nature screams the truth about God. He wrote, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, he says, meaning those who reject the truth about a creator, they are without excuse. 
Romans 1.20. In other words, there is no excuse for our unbelief because simply looking around you can clearly, you can clearly see the fingerprint of a creator in what has been made. In just the same way as you see a, a copying machine or a printer, for instance, you can see the fingerprint of a creator all over that machine because it is obvious, right? It's obvious to anyone looking at that machine, the way that it works, the, the way that everything is ordered and structured to work together to make copies and to print, it is obvious that that machine did not come to exist on its own. Right? We know that some person very clearly designed and built that machine. We don't even question it. And yet all that that machine does is copy and print. It cannot think for itself. It cannot act on its own behalf. It cannot feel or hope or dream or love. It cannot do anything other than copy and print. While the person who designed and built that copier can do all of those things and far more because that person is an infinitely more complex machine than the copier that he built. Not to mention the earth and every bit of nature in it being vastly more complex in its structure and order and function than a copying machine. And yet we laugh at the idea of someone designing and creating all of this and all of us while readily accepting the idea that somehow we randomly evolved into what we are today. And so Paul says, look, uh, listen, you may choose not to believe it. You may refuse to recognize the obvious work of an intelligent being in creation, but at the end of the day, you really have no excuse because his fingerprint is all over this earth. In fact, it is all over you, whether you choose to accept that or not. And make no mistake, God gives us the dignity of free will. He allows us to make that choice to follow him or not. Listen, when Jesus was calling his first disciples, he didn't say to them, pray this prayer so that you can have a personal relationship with me. No, one after another after another. He approached them while they were working, while some were with their family, while they were with their friends. And he said to them, come follow me. And they dropped what they were doing, left their former lives in the dust, and obediently followed Jesus. You understand, that is how they came to have a personal relationship with him, by accepting his invitation to follow him. And look, he extended that very same invitation to many others who chose not to follow him, because he gives us the dignity of free will. At one point, a wealthy young man asked Jesus what he had to do to have eternal life. Jesus didn't say, repeat this prayer after me, and then you will have eternal life, or even a personal relationship with me. No, he said to the young man, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The exact same invitation that he extended to the other disciples. Come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Matthew 19, 21 and 22. Same call, same invitation, same opportunity as the other disciples, but a very different response. Why? Because the young man learned that day that there are consequences to following Jesus. And he had the dignity of free will. He was able to choose. 
But listen, if you do choose to follow Jesus Christ, you actually have to change the way that you live your life. You, you have to leave things behind. You have to deny yourself. You, you have to lay your own life down for other people. You have to do what he wants instead of what you want when those two things are not the same. Look, there are very real consequences to following Jesus Christ. The fact is it changes your life drastically. And the fact is not everyone is, is willing. In fact, most people are not willing to pay that price. But make no mistake, the invitation to follow him is the same today as it was then. We can choose to follow the creator, the one that we owe our very existence to, accepting that we've been wonderfully made for a great purpose, which we talked about last week. Or we can choose to follow ourselves and see where that gets us which incidentally is exactly how we've ended up where we are as a society today. And so again, last Sunday we, we talked about the fact that every single one of us was created by God, wonderfully made for a God-given purpose. And today we're going to take that discussion one step further and talk about what that purpose actually is as the story of creation continues to unfold. Because listen, uh, I can tell you unequivocally, that your God-given purpose doesn't begin and end with you praying a prayer and asking Jesus into your heart. I mean, that's great. That's necessary. That's one way to accept the invitation to follow him. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith alone. No question. But once you do that, you have to get up, leave your former life behind, and actually follow him, not to earn your salvation, but because of your salvation. That's what we do. We follow Jesus and we have a picture of what that looks like. How God intended it to be right from the start as we continue uh, working our way through the creation story of Genesis. So let's turn there together if you have your Bible. If not, we'll, we'll have it on the screen as well. And let's see if we can find out exactly what he went to all of this trouble for. Right? For what purpose? Are we so wonderfully made? And this uh, topic, by the way, will cover uh, two sermons. Uh, we'll, we'll cover the first two points this morning and then the next three or so points next Sunday. So we'll pick up where we left off last week and read Genesis 1, beginning with verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So right from the beginning of verse 26, there is a shift. In fact, it is a, <clears throat> it is a profound shift from the way that God has been creating and forming the earth and its inhabitants up to this point. For the first time since the story began in this epic drama of the creation of all things, for the first time we see God address what appears to be himself. In every other section up until now, each new creation sequence begins with, and God said, let there be, and then you can fill in the blank according to whatever he was creating that day. But on the sixth day, after he'd formed the land animals, he very purposefully and very significantly changes his approach. On this day, he says, let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. There are scholars who have suggested that God was addressing the angels here or perhaps his heavenly court. The problem with that theory is is the fact that there's absolutely no indication in scripture whatsoever that we were made in the image of angels or that angels had any part uh, in the creation process whatsoever. On the contrary, scripture is very clear that we were made in the image of God alone, not in the image of angels not in the image of apes, not in the image of other primates or other mammals. No, we were made in the image of the Creator Himself. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, which was spoken directly to the other members of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, John 1 tells us that Jesus was not only present, but very much involved in the creation story. In fact, it says that all things were made through him, through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made, John 1, 3. And of course, we also see the Holy Spirit involved in the creation story as early as verse 2 of Genesis 1. So we know that the Trinitarian Godhead was creating all of this together, and so it makes complete sense that when God creates man in his image, it is the complete image of God, the Trinitarian Godhead. By the way, uh, the idea of the Godhead being in conversation with itself is seen all throughout Scripture, not just here in Genesis 1. We see evidence of it in Psalm 110.1, uh, Isaiah 48.16, John 5.30, John 8.28, just to name a few. So from the very beginning and then all throughout history, the Godhead has been in conversation with itself, as you would expect it to be. And as we listen in to their conversation here in Genesis 1.26 and 27, we find out one of the reasons that we were so fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, we were made to reflect God's image, which is unique to mankind because no other aspect of his entire creation was created in his image, right? Not the rock formations, not the planets, not the seas, not the plants, not the animals. Only mankind is described as being made in the image of God and after the likeness of the Godhead, which means we are a completely unique element of God's creation, wonderfully and fearfully made in his image, which speaks directly to both the physical and spiritual aspects of humanity. Because first of all, if we're all descended from other mammals, then at some point those other species evolved into the image of God, right? And so what, at what point was that? At what point in the evolutionary process do the animals become a reflection of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because listen, uh, Jesus didn't die for your dog. He didn't. He died for you. He didn't come back to the earth as a great ape. He came back as a man. Only mankind has the potential to be joint heirs with Christ. Only mankind is referred to as children of God. Only mankind can pray to the Father and only mankind can be filled with His Holy Spirit. And all of that is possible because only mankind was created in His image. Only we can reflect His image physically. The Apostle John's description of the glorified Jesus in the Revelation is the image of a man 
on a horse, not an ape or a bird or a fish on a horse. Because only mankind can reflect his image physically. And by the way, only mankind can reflect his image spiritually. Genesis 7.15 describes the process of animals entering Noah's ark before the flood. It says they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And that phrase, the breath of life, in that verse is the Hebrew word ruach, which is translated as breath of life, literally, or spirit. Later then in Genesis 7, 20 through 23, we read about the great flood and what happens to the animals that were not in the ark. It says, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. And again, the word ruach, breath of life, is used in verse 22. The assertion being that every living animal has a spirit. By the way, there are other passages in Scripture that bear this out. Ecclesiastes 3 is another one, another example. We just don't have time to go through all of that today. But look, if that is true, if animals have a spirit, how then is mankind any different spiritually than all of the other animals, right? How does mankind reflect the Godhead any differently than the animals? Well, when Genesis 2-7 describes the creation of mankind, it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Hebrew word for breath of life in that verse is not the word ruach which again is literally translated as breath of life. No, in Genesis 2, when it talks about the creation of mankind, it is the word neshama, which means breath of God. And interestingly, the Hasidic Jews teach that this neshama is actually a part of God himself, an eternal spirit. You see, if, if we evolved from other animals, from other mammals, it would make sense that we would share the same breath of life, right? But, but according to scripture, we don't. Which means if evolution is true, then at some point in our evolution, God would have to breathe a second breath of life into us, the neshama, and yet that is not what the Bible describes as happening. No, he breathed one kind of spirit into the animals and a completely different kind of spirit into mankind. Can you see? that according to the word of God, only mankind was created to reflect the image of God, both physically and spiritually, which incidentally is why much of this world is in the shape that it is in. Because every day, men and women choose by their own free will to try and reflect something other than the creator. And when we do that, we're taking on a role that we were never created for. You see, we're trying to be something we were never created to be. And so uh, you end up with governments and societies and individuals run amok because we're working against the creator and his created order and structure and purpose for this world. Think about it. Why don't we see the same dysfunction in the animal kingdom? Because animals by and large no matter what is happening in our society around them, animals continue to be exactly what they were created to be. 
You see, if we would just do the same, the world would be a very different place. And when Jesus called men and women to follow him, what he was actually doing was showing them how to reflect the creator. How to be the men and women that he created us to be by reflecting him. You understand all of our problems. Honestly, at the end of the day, all of our problems stem from us trying to reflect something other than the Creator, which is exactly what happens when we follow something other than Jesus. In fact, if you keep reading the passage in Romans that we read earlier, where the Apostle Paul says that the evidence of the Creator is clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. If you, if you keep reading that passage, Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, Instead of reflecting the image of the creator, they chose to reflect the image of created things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1, 21 through 25. This is precisely why in many parts of our country today you can be arrested for cutting down a living tree but it is perfectly legal to kill a living child in the womb. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Isaiah 43, 7 says that we were created for his glory. That is our primary purpose in this life, to glorify God. But look, the primary way that we do that is by reflecting Him, His image, to the rest of the world. But you cannot reflect His image while you're worshiping other things. And now we get to the heart of the matter. Because you cannot follow Jesus and follow other things at the same time. Now, uh, you can have many other things in your life, while following Jesus, of course, family, friends, hobbies, career, all of those things are or certainly can be good for us. But listen, they must all be in tow as we follow and focus on Jesus Christ. Those things must come along with us as we stay focused on following him. The problem with much of the church today is the fact that we've got it all turned around in the opposite direction. We follow many other things in this world with Jesus in tow. We focus on following other things while we try to drag him along for the ride. But the truth is we're only fooling ourselves and then we wonder why our lives are such a mess. You see, you can only reflect what you're focused on. If you're focused on money and material things, your life will reflect that focus. If you're focused on impressing other people, your life will reflect that focus. If it's politics or social issues, your life will reflect that focus. If you are focused on yourself, 
Your life will reflect that focus in everything that you say and do. Look, at the end of the day, whatever it is your life is focused on, that is what your life will reflect. And yet there's only one thing that we were actually created to reflect. And that is the image of God himself. That is the purpose you were fearfully and wonderfully made for. And so if your life is not where it needs to be today, if you're not fulfilling your God-given purpose in this life, you simply need to shift your focus and follow Jesus where he wants you to go instead of trying to lead him where you want to go. Because look, you, you, will, you will never, ever, ever be able to fulfill his great purpose for your life when your life is focused on something other than him. And again, it's not, uh, it's not that you can't or shouldn't have other things in your life. You certainly should. It's how you view and interact with those other things in your life that really makes the difference, which leads us into the next part of the story. So let's keep reading verse 28 to the end of the chapter. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So for the first five days of creation, God makes the earth, and the seas, and the plants, and the animals. Then on the sixth day, he makes human beings and he says to them, you are now in charge of everything I made in the first five days. Right? He hands them the keys to this earthly kingdom and he says, take care of it. In fact, he says, fill it, subdue it, and have dominion over it. In other words, we were made to rule over the earth. This is another aspect of the God-given purpose that we were so wonderfully made for, to rule over the earth. Psalm 8, 4 through 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That means we are God's kingly representatives on this earth. We are here to reflect his royal image. Verse 6, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. We were made to rule over the earth. And I understand that that kind of language makes us uncomfortable today, right? We don't talk about having dominion over things anymore or putting things under our feet or subduing things, right? In our culture, the idea of ruling over the earth sounds heavy-handed, even arrogant. But listen, <laughs> Jesus isn't just our friend. He is our king. He rules over us, which also happens to be the most loving, compassionate, and just treatment that we could ever hope to receive from him. Why? Because he is a loving, compassionate, and just ruler. 
And so if we're going to reflect his image on this earth, we have to lovingly and compassionately and justly rule over the earth. But look, you cannot rule over something that you worship. And therein lies the problem. Because once again, we've gotten ourselves turned around. We are supposed to rule over that which is created while worshiping the Creator. But instead, we worship what has been created while trying to rule over the Creator. Often, we're more in love with this world than we are with Jesus. So we follow the ways of the world and try to bring Jesus along with us. And in the process, we not only fail to reflect His image in this world, but we let this world rule over us. Hebrews 2.8, after quoting the passage we just read from Psalm 8, the author of Hebrews says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. But listen to the last part of the verse. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. You see, presently, the earth is not fully submitted under the rule of mankind because mankind is not fully submitted under the rule of Jesus Christ. As long as our relationship with God as the human race is out of harmony with His purposes for us, we will never be able to fully exercise our proper place of authority in relationship to the rest of His creation. And that is not just a physical authority that we're given either, by the way. It is a spiritual authority as well. Listen, we have power and dominion as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We have power and dominion over sin. The Apostle Paul said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Romans 6, 12 through 14. We have power and dominion over sin. Look, we have authority over the dark demonic powers of the enemy. In Luke's gospel, he reports that the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Luke 10, 17 through 19. Do you understand? We have authority over the dark demonic powers of the enemy. We have authority over how we uh, raise our children. Amen. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. We have authority over our finances. Proverbs 3, 9. We have authority to make disciples, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We have authority to pray for the sick, James 5. Authority to see others set free, Galatians 5, 13 and John 8, 36. Authority to bless each other, 1 Peter 3, 9. Authority to hold one another to account, Matthew 18. Authority to teach the truth, Titus 1, 9. And authority to be generous in every way, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through Eleven, You see, we have all of this authority that has been given to us. So why do we struggle so much in these very same areas of our lives? It's because you cannot rule over something that you worship. If you worship your kids, 
You cannot raise them with authority. And a child raised without authority will become an adult who refuses to recognize all authority of any kind. You cannot rule over your health when excess is your God. And now my ears are burning. Preaching to myself here. Listen, you cannot rule over your schedule when busyness is your God. You cannot rule over something that you worship. You cannot rule over your finances when money is your God. You cannot rule over your pride when your ego is your God. You cannot rule over your emotions when fear is your God. You cannot rule over what has been created when the created world is your God. You cannot rule over something that you worship. But listen, when you get it right, when you keep your focus on following Jesus Christ, on worshiping him, which, by the way, puts every other thing in your life in its proper place, what happens when you do that? Think about it. When you stop worshiping yourself and instead, for instance, sacrifice some of your food and some of your time so that you can focus on Jesus, right? When you fast and pray, what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is you gain perspective because you're ruling over your appetite and your attention. And all of a sudden, the appetites of this world and its demand for your attention gets put into its proper place under the rule of your authority. Secondly, you create space in your life for God to work. I used to have uh, beagles, and I loved those dogs, but they weren't very sensible. Every time they would smell something exciting like a, a, a rabbit or a deer or a squirrel or a chipmunk or a fly, pretty much anything that was wild out in the woods, anything in existence, they would run off and chase after that scent. And sometimes they'd be gone for a couple of days. Invariably, I would eventually find them on the front porch, usually wet, cold, shivering and hungry and they would look at me with these big eyes like I can't believe you let it get this bad <laughs> like how could you do this to us and so I would try to explain to them although I don't think they ever seemed to get it that if you would just follow me instead of chasing after every wild thing in the woods that seemed more exciting if you would just keep your focus on me instead you would be well taken care of provided for played with warm dry fed because everything that you need is right here with me but as soon as they caught the next scent they were gone the truth is the truth is we can be kind of like that with God we focus on just about everything but him and then we wonder why he allows our lives to get as bad as they do sometimes but you understand when you take authority the authority that he has given to you as a child of God over those areas of your life that have instead been ruling over you when you take that authority back and focus on following Jesus Christ instead you create space in your life for him to work because you're no longer being distracted or ruled by this world and listen the more authority that you have the more that you can exercise it in your own life and in fact in the lives of others that's what happens when you're actually following Jesus that's when you can pray with authority and people get healed 
We've seen it here, haven't we? That's when people are miraculously provided for. We've seen it right here. Look, that's when the calling of God is realized in our lives. It's when the greatest needs are met. That's when supernatural peace comes in the midst of turmoil. That is when your life begins to turn around, when you focus on Jesus Christ and take authority over the things that you previously worshipped in this world because that is when you make room for God to work in your life. So just remember, you cannot rule over something that you worship. And so look, if this world has such a tight grip on you that you are being ruled by it, then it's time for you to take your God-given authority over the ways of this world back. That is, in fact, what you were made for. Because Jesus didn't just call us to pray a prayer of faith. He called us to follow him. And there is always a great purpose in following Jesus Christ. But that is going to mean shifting your focus from this world back onto him. It's going to mean drastically changing the way that you live your life every day. It's going to mean leaving some things behind. It's going to mean denying yourself. It's going to mean laying your own life down for him and for other people. And it will mean going wherever he leads you and doing whatever he wants you to do instead of what you want to do. In fact, following Jesus it means being so close to him that his very image is actually reflected in you. And I'm telling you, that is the most powerful and purposeful life you could ever live because when you are that close to Jesus, this world no longer has a hold over you. Can you see, can you see how you were made for so much more than simply living for yourself? When the, when the primary focus of your life is on yourself, we think we're getting ahead. And actually, we're settling for far less than what he created us for. You were made for so much more than just living for yourself or living for this world. You were created for so much more than just trying to get by from day to day. You were made for so much more than simply trying to please people. You were made to be so much more than anything this world will ever promise you. The truth is you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Made to reflect the very image of the creator of the heavens and the earth and to exercise authority over that creation as his royal priesthood now you tell me what greater purpose could there be let's pray